Today's reading is from John chapter 19, 16 through 37. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I imagine there are 
many in this room who enjoy driving around and looking at Christmas decorations. I don't think I'm the only one. Some of you enjoy doing that. I'm, I'm quite confident. I'm excited for tonight because our neighborhood is going to do the luminary thing where you have the bag, white bags with the candles all around. It's just going to be gorgeous. But if you, if you drive out of our neighborhood, uh, day or night right now on Queensgate Road, uh, you'll see a large illuminated sign. It's part of their Christmas decorations in their front yard. And in large letters, it contains the following, joy, peace, believe, Christmas. That's it. And every time I drive by that sign, I am both, in my heart, encouraged and saddened at the same time. I'm I'm encouraged, friends, because there is a good and glorious reason to be filled with joy and peace and faith during Christmas, amen? But I'm saddened because the sign does not give the reason at all. And in so many ways, I I think that's, that's the spirit of our age. You know, deep, deep inside, we long for joy, right? We, we long for peace. We, we, we long for something. Even if you don't call yourself a Christian, I'm willing to bet that you too long for something real to believe and to build your life on. That's human. But, but frankly, we, we don't culturally seem to know where to find that. So you, so you go to the mall or you walk, walk into Starbucks and what do you see right now? What will you see this afternoon? All manner of, of festive holiday decorations, trappings of Christmas that, that suggest quite strongly there is something going on in this season that is really worth celebrating, right? But many of them don't say what it is because we're not collectively sure what it is. Well, the Bible has an answer to that question. And, and it's not the, the resilience of the human spirit or believing in our better angels, okay? The, the joy and peace and hope for tomorrow that Christianity offers you, friend, has everything to do with an announcement found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that we read nearly two years ago. Listen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Or as the angel declares in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay, that is the reason for joy and peace and faith, everything that's on that sign, right, at Christmas. The the God who created the world and everything in it hasn't 
abandoned us in our brokenness state, alienated from him and estranged from one another. He's come to us, friends. He's walked among us. He's, he's carried our griefs and our sorrows and done that all the way to the cross to bear our curse and die our death that the judgment of God might not be the final word over our life. And so in a real sense, Jesus was born to die. That's why why he came into the world in the first place. His his death in John 19, what we just read, is is the moment the the entire gospel has been anticipating and and building toward. Because it's, it's what Jesus does right here, friends that actually makes Christmas good news. If if you take this chapter out of the Gospel of John, we don't have good news. But it's in here, and so we do. Because Christmas tells us that we need a Savior, and in Jesus, God has become the Savior we need desperately need. That's the good news of Christmas. And if you know something about photography or art, uh, you might be familiar with this idea of a focal point. Okay, or maybe some of you physicists in the room are tracking with that. It's, what's that? Well, it's part of the image that's most in focus, right? It's the, the center of attention or, or interest. The, the focal point, if you would, of the entire Bible, Gospel of John included, is the sacrificial death of Jesus. It's what happens right here in this chapter. So, what comes into focus? Here's the question. If it's the focal point, what comes into focus when when we follow John's lead in directing our gaze to Calvary? What comes into focus? I think at least six considerations come into view here. Yes, that means this is going to be a six-point sermon. So, let's briefly consider each one of these, okay? Recognizing we will never plumb the depths of God's glory in this passage. First, first thing that comes into focus, consideration number one. Consider the weight of his cross. The weight of his cross Look at verse 17. As verse 17 begins, Jesus has already been, as Josh preached last Sunday, flogged and beaten. The the blood loss is extensive. The physical damage to his body is severe. And now the Roman soldiers compelled Jesus to walk to the place of a skull. Just outside Jerusalem, where they they crucify notorious criminals. And notice, John adds, he went out bearing his own cross. That's not a throwaway detail in the least. That's, that's a significant detail, friends. Because that speaks to the, the willingness of Christ's suffering. He, he didn't go to Calvary kicking and screaming. In other words, he, he fully and, and literally embraced the Father's will for his life, even when it came at a tremendous cost. So yes, he was horribly abused. 
beaten by sinful men, but though they felt like they were doing to him whatever they pleased, notice Jesus isn't ultimately obeying them, right? He, he's obeying who? His heavenly father who, who planned from eternity past to make a way through the death of his son to redeem wayward, rebellious sinners like us home to God. So make no mistake Though John says it was his own cross, this cross is ours first, friends. Because ours was the guilt. And ours was the condemnation. And and he willingly carried it for our sake. And and actually, Hebrews 13, 11 compares Jesus' actions here, right here, to the animal sacrifices on the Day of Atonement under the Old Covenant. Listen. Listen. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered where? Outside the gate. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And suffer he did, friends. John doesn't linger long on the details. In verse 18, look there. When he writes, there they crucified him. We need to think about what that means. Because crucifixion was arguably the worst penalty Rome could inflict. And they were into cruel forms of punishment. And this was the worst by far. In fact, it was so painful that Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. Unless the emperor himself authorized it. So when they crucified Jesus, they stripped him naked. And nailed his hands to a horizontal beam and then dropped that beam into a slot on a vertical post to which they then nailed or tied his feet. So to to take a full breath, you had to either, to open your chest cavity, you had to either pull yourself up with your arms or push up with your legs, both of which created excruciating pain. But it's kind of pick your poison, right? Breathe. Or not. And usually this lasted several days until victims eventually died of asphyxiation because they couldn't keep raising themselves up. It was slow and it was prolonged. It was cruel by design. And yet, the physical suffering of Jesus in that moment is nothing compared to the divine judgment he endured. I mean, have you, have you ever felt, be honest, okay? Have you ever felt the weight, the crushing weight of, of guilt for something you know you did wrong? Like you can be making dinner 
and guilt is there. You can be driving to this, running errands, and guilt is there. It just follows, right? Some of you have felt that. Imagine bearing the cumulative weight of the sin of the world. Past, present, and future at one time. And then over the course of several hours, the Father pouring out the fury of all his righteous wrath for every evil thought and every evil deed all at the same time. I mention that because it's important that we know it was not ultimately the Romans who killed him. It was God himself. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Such was the weight of the cross. Such was the weight of the cross. To which it is possible to try and say, thank you, Jesus for taking care of all that sacrificial stuff. So now I can live a victorious life of health and comfort and prosperity. Friend, Hebrews 13 begs to differ. Listen, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Whereas Luke 14, 27 says, Jesus speaking, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, so, so which is it, Matthew? I, I thought the whole point isn't what all this is leading up to is that, that Jesus bore the cross so we wouldn't have to. What's up? Well, friend, in the sense of of God's wrath being fully satisfied, absolutely, Jesus, praise God for this, right? Jesus bore the cross so we would never have to for all who are in Christ Jesus. So not in that sense, but listen, what he has done does not eliminate the necessity of laying down our life in obedient submission to the Father's will, no matter the cost. And in that sense, friend, that's, that's actually what it means to follow Jesus. It, it means we die. We die. We die to what? We, it means dying to our sinful desires and affections. It means dying to our our infatuation with our own glory, our our own ease, our own reputation. It means living a cruciform life of absolute surrender to God's priorities and purposes. That's what it means. For for the the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And, And in response to his great love for us, the Lord invites us to do the same, friends. Invites us to do the same. Humble gratitude. And willing obedience are the defining marks, humble gratitude, willing obedience, 
of those who consider the weight of his cross. Consideration two, consider the authority of his reign. Not just the weight of his cross, but the authority of his reign. So crucified criminals, if you you weren't familiar with this, they they almost always had a, a placard, a sign, with the nature of their offense fixed to the cross above their head so that everybody passing by would be deterred, discouraged, to put it mildly, from ever doing what they did. And in Jesus' case, Pilate writes the following. Look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That was a political shot. And a big one on Pilate's part. It was a shot at the Jews who pressured him, manipulated him really, into condemning Jesus. As D.A. Carson observes, Pilate is determined to humiliate those who have humiliated him. Well, how's he doing that? Well, what's that sign basically saying? Well, you want me to crucify Jesus? Fine. Fine. I'll show you what I think of all your purported kings. This is what I think. None of them stand a chance against Roman authority. Don't, don't think Pilate has you know, suddenly become converted here and is seeking to proclaim the truth. He, he's taking a shot at the Jews. But, but yet it's happened so often in the Gospel of John, right? The, the guy spoke better than he knew. <laughs> it's what's so stunning, right? Because Jesus just isn't the rightful king of the Jewish people. He's the king of the universe, friends. And John recognizes the irony. What's going on? Pilate is mocking Jesus and the Jews in as many languages as he can come up with. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. But what is the Lord of glory doing? He's ordaining praise out of the mouths of sinful men. He's declaring his glory among the nations, his his marvelous works among all the peoples. I mean, what is even the the detail that that was written in three languages shout that Jesus is king of the world? Verse 20, look, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. What's happening at the very moment that wicked men are mocking and abusing and killing and destroying God? God is proclaiming his glory, friends. Not later, not despite that, not, well, that's tough, but at least over in lane two, things are going according to plan. No, no, through the very mockery of wicked men, God exalts his name. But in the eyes of Jews and Romans alike, you know, a crucified king was a contradiction in terms if there ever was one. But not in the wisdom of God. For it was through his crucifixion that King Jesus inaugurated his redemptive rule. How so? Well, because through his crucifixion, King Jesus crushed the power of sin and death. 
King Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces of evil. King Jesus proved that the wickedness of human rebellion is no match for the covenant faithfulness of God. That's what King Jesus did. And so when we we behold the son hanging on the cross, what do we behold? We behold the greatest victory King Jesus has ever won. F.F. Bruce is right. The crucified one is the true king. The kingliest king of all. Because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory. And I love this. And he reigns from the tree. He reigns from the tree. Not, Not despite the tree or after the tree or before the tree. From the tree. But we don't think like that, you know, naturally. We tend to conclude on account of our own suffering, especially when it's severe and prolonged, that that God must not be in charge. God must not be on his throne. How, How can Christ be king if all of these things are happening to me? We go there. Well, remember the triumph of Calvary, friend, when you go there. Remember the authority he exercised at the cross. Remember that ours is a God who who demonstrates the might of his sovereign arm by taking the worst acts of evil and redeeming them for his glory and your God. Remember that. The, The words Pilate refused to alter in verse 21 point to the eternal truth of Psalm 93, verse 1. And listen, these words remained true even in the hour of Jesus' greatest suffering. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has Put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. What does that mean? That Jesus is not holding on for dear life when human oppression or human injustice rear their ugly head or or ruling despite the actions of sinful men. No, King Jesus exercises his reign through those actions. He triumphs in the midst of them. And so as surely as he magnified his glory through the mockery of those who murdered him, so too, Christian, will he bear witness to his power through your suffering. That's how King Jesus rolls. So consider the authority of his reign. Third, consider the fulfillment of his word. The fulfillment of his word. The third thing that comes into focus here. John lingers in a place in this passage that, that frankly, when I was first reading through this, surprised me. Or at least I thought, well, that seems a little odd. Why, why would you spend two whole verses on how the soldiers divvied up your clothes. I mean, aren't, aren't bigger things in the heavenly realms, you know, 
you're, you're kind of in the middle of saving the world. So, you know, somebody edit that out. You know, it's just, what's up? Well, John lingers here, friend, by design. Because he emphasizes a pattern that's held true for Jesus' entire life and, and only intensifies during his final hours. What's the pattern? That, that both everything that happened to him and everything he did, it all went down in accordance with biblical prophecies that were hundreds and in many cases thousands of years old. Take Take Psalm 22, for example. Because what this, we'll look at this, but what, what's this scream? What's this shout? That it wasn't just like God's word was fulfilled in the big events. God's word was also fulfilled in the little details that make up those big events. So, so King, Psalm 22, King David wrote this around 1000 B.C., And it describes his experience as a righteous sufferer, sorely attacked and oppressed by his enemies to the point of death. That's pretty much the story of God's people throughout history. But it's not just David's story or or even our story. Ultimately, it's it's Jesus' story, David's greater son. He's the righteous sufferer without equal. Listen to what David says in Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. 1000 BC. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. You realize that? And John recognizes it. He, even the way the soldiers divide Jesus' clothing isn't a, a random thing or a, a chance thing. There, there is nothing random or chance that ever goes down in the universe God rules. Ever. Are these guys doing exactly what they want to do? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. But what are they unwittingly doing at the exact same time? They are fulfilling the word of God. They're proving the trustworthiness of his promises. I mean, you could, you could read the placard that Pilate put over Jesus' head, and you could think, well, okay, that's funny. Must be an ironic twist of fate. You know, that happens. Well, how about the way they divide his garments in verse 24, in exact fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18? Or the way they give him sour wine to drink in verse 28, in fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21? Or the way they don't break any of Jesus' bones in verse 33, in fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, and Psalm 34, 20? Or the way they pierce Jesus' side with his spear in verse 34, in fulfillment of exactly what Zechariah 12.10 said would happen. Four times, okay? In John 19, Jesus, or John says, that this was to fulfill the scripture. Or to fulfill the scripture. Or or these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What what is that shout, friends? What's the cross of Christ declaring in those moments that the word of God is utterly and completely and forever 
worthy of your trust. Not just in the big things or the big ideas, but but in the little details, the smallest parts, the, the the seemingly tiniest promises, including the actions of sinful men. Remember that, friend. The fact that everything taking place in this chapter goes down exactly the way God said it would go down, what's that do? That confronts us with the glory of a God who keeps his promises and works all things according to the counsel of his will. Think of it this way. When God says in his word, something will happen, it happens. 100% of the time. His word is worthy of your trust, friend. It's not just more worthy than other things. It is utterly worthy of your trust. So when you come across something specific in the next year, in God's word, and you think, I don't like that. <laughs> or that's hard to understand. Or, or that has yet to come to pass. So how can I know that's actually true? And, and you think, well, man, why should I even believe that? Here's what you need to do. You need to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember how, how all the things God promised long beforehand would happen went down exactly the way he said they would happen. Remember that. It didn't happen by accident or chance. It happened because God was self-consciously fulfilling his word. Here's the fourth consideration we need to keep in view. Consider the tenderness of his care. So the weight of his cross, the authority of his reign, fulfillment of his word, fourth, the, the tenderness of his care. Look at verse 24. picks up with what the soldiers are doing, but then in verse 25, John draws a sharp contrast between their actions and a group of women. They're standing around the cross supporting Jesus. But standing by the cross, Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And it's it's worth noting here that, that their steadfast loyalty to Jesus is all the more striking given the vast majority of his followers just abandoned him in his final hour. And and even his main man, Peter, right? Completely disowned him. But not not this group. Not this group. And when, when Jesus sees them, he does something that gives us a really precious window into the heart of God. Don't miss this, okay? In the midst of excruciating pain, with the weight of the guilt of the world on his shoulders, the, the very one who in that exact moment was still holding the universe together, he stops to care for his mom. Do you realize that? Stops to care for his mom. John doesn't come out and say this, but but the clear assumption of verses 26 through 27 is that that Joseph, his adoptive dad, has died. And Jesus knows the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and mother. He knows he has a God-given responsibility. As we do, friends. 
to physically provide for our own household. As the Apostle Paul writes, 1 Timothy 5, 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So, so what does Jesus do? Well, he entrusts his mother Mary to the, the disciple whom he loved, presumably John, and to her he says, behold your son. To, to him he says, behold your mother. Notice, even at the height of his suffering, Jesus isn't using his suffering as an excuse to avoid doing the Father's will. Do you see that? He, he, didn't, he didn't say, you know what, God, I'm dealing with a lot of issues right now. <laughs> when life settles down a bit, trust me, I'll get back to obeying your word and the whole caring for your parents' area. No. No, he didn't. He, he loved to the very end. His, his righteousness, his obedience, even in suffering, was, was perfect when, with everything else he had going on. And it was a lot, right? He didn't lose sight of Mary's physical needs. It would have been easy to do so, right? I mean, what, what's, what's one woman's need for physical provision when you are literally in the midst of saving the entire world? But, but, but Jesus doesn't cut his losses. Do you see that? Because he's the God who stops for one, friends. He sees you too. Even if you're a widow, even if you're increasing in age and you can't see and you're, you're pretty much dependent on other people to take care of you, what do you need to know? What, what does the cross of Jesus Christ bring into view, bring into focus? You are not hidden from your God. You're not invisible to him, widow. And he doesn't just have eyes for your, your spiritual welfare. He cares for your finances. He cares for your housing. He cares for your body. The, the tender care the Lord demonstrates here is breathtaking. You can trust him to care for you too. And what Jesus does here in, in setting the solitary and a family, uniting John and his mom to, to one another in the, in the context of shared loyalty to him. That really is a beautiful picture of the end result of all that he's doing through the gospel. If you think about it, when we trust Jesus to make us right with God, I mentioned this earlier in announcements, what, what happens? He doesn't just reconcile us to himself. He also reconciles us, unites us to one another as members of his body, the church, he creates a new kind of family bound together by shared devotion to him. He cares for us through his people. We have to be careful with that because we cannot heal as human beings or a church what only Jesus can restore. Please don't ask the church to be your functional savior. 
because we're all sinners who need a Savior. And the church isn't the Savior. Jesus is. But, but one of the sweet ways our Savior, King Jesus, cares for us is through the spiritual family of his people. He, he knows your frame. He knows your desire and need for human companionship. Notice he doesn't say to Mary, surely, Mom, Psalm 63, you know, 73, I'm enough for you. No, he leads her to John, and John takes her into his home. It's the tenderness of his care and an obedient response to that kind of love for us, friends. May we be a people that do the same for one another over and over and over again. Consider the tenderness of his care. Fifth, consider the perfection of his work. The perfection of his work. Look at verse 28. What's John write? After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. Knowing what was finished? Well, John 17, 4. All the work of salvation for mankind that the Father sent him to accomplish. So, so through his perfect obedience in life and death, he earned a spotless righteousness for us in the Father's sight. And as he, as he hung suspended between heaven and earth, he, he received in his body and soul the divine judgment we deserve. He, he atoned for our guilt. He paid our debt. No more sacrifice for sin remained. And Jesus knew it. That's the point. He, he saw the finish line. He knew his saving mission had been accomplished. And so with blood dripping from his mutilated body, he asked for a drink for his parched throat so that he could cry out the best single word that the world has ever heard. To tell us die. We're in Greek. It's finished. It's finished. Not, well, that's all I can do, folks. <laughs> or, Father, I guess you'll have to take things over from here. Or, or, sorry, I couldn't stay longer, guys. No. No. Not at all. Mission accomplished. Work completed. Redemption secured, death destroyed, salvation won, hell defeated, heaven opened. What God promised. What God promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, very beginning of the story. When we messed it up big time, what did he promise that one day the offspring of the woman would crush that serpent's head. That's what Jesus brought to pass. That is finished. And he didn't do it the way God's people, the Jews, expected. He didn't show up and rescue them from physical slavery to the Romans. He came to rescue them from spiritual slavery to sin and death. Death. 
right? And in the process, what did he do? He inaugurated a cosmic renewal where one day all things will be made new in a physical sense. So right now we're waiting for it to come to pass, but, but the necessary work is complete, Jesus announces. There's no more sacrifice for sin remaining here. Hebrews 10 verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, old covenant, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Major contrast, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, friends, when Jesus sits down, it's not because he's tired or because he needs a break. Jesus sits down because no more work for your salvation remains. That's why he sits down. And that is what makes a legal spirit an attitude that that tries to earn or, or maintain love, favor from God through obedience to God such an affront to the glory of Christ. Let me illustrate. We can do this in subtle ways. Say I make a really big mistake and I don't do something hypothetically that I told my wife I would do. (laughs) Hypothetically. (laughs) It's all hypothetical. (laughs) How should I respond? Well, I should apologize, receive the gift of her forgiveness, thanks be to God, and move on. What am I sorely tempted to do, though? To try and atone for my iniquity by doing all kinds of good things to make up for my sin. Right? We do this in relationships all the time. So, so I don't say it, but I'll, I'll clean things she didn't ask me to clean. <laughs> I mean, we're laughing because we can relate, right? Not because this is good, I hope. If you think this is good, hold on. I'm about to indict myself, okay? I'll, I'll work hard to keep the boys from bothering her. I'll offer to cook dinner. I, I, I basically put myself on self-imposed relational probation until I feel like I've done enough penance to adequately repay my debt. Ever done that? Well, what's the problem with that kind of response to the grace of the conviction of sin? I'm I'm essentially saying, Jesus, I know you said the work of salvation is finished, that no more sacrifice for sin remains, but I think you failed to bear some of the suffering I deserve. And I think you failed to earn a bit of righteousness that I need to earn. I'm, I'm really grateful for all you've done to help me, but God helps those who help themselves, right? Why do I, here's the indictment, why do I desperately want to add my work to Christ? You realize that. It's not like it just happens. 
I want to. Why? Why do I want to add my work in the mix? It's, is it not because of the pride in my heart that wants the ego boost of knowing I think I contributed even a little something to my salvation? Lord, have mercy, right? It, it feels humble to walk around with our heads hung low, beating ourselves up for all we've done wrong, saying things like, I just can't forgive myself. Friend, in reality, that's the height of pride. The height of pride. Why? Think of it this way. Behind every human attempt at self-atonement, because that's what that is, okay? is a lingering, arrogant, prideful unbelief in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. That's the problem. We, and we display the same attitude when we put other people who've sinned against us on their relational probation, right? Forcing them to, to kind of grovel in the dust a bit before we're willing to forgive them. So, so whether, whether we have sinned or we've been sinned against, how foolish is it, friends, for us to try and finish ourselves or make someone else finish a work of forgiveness and cleansing and salvation that Jesus Christ himself says, it is finished. That's folly. Consider the perfection of his work. Rest in him for salvation. Here's the final consideration. Look at verse 32. The soldiers approached Jesus here to break his legs. The Jews wanted him to die faster so that his body could be taken away before the Sabbath day, the next day of the Passover festival. But when the soldiers come up, they, they discover Jesus had already died. So they don't break his legs. Why is that significant? Well, because the law, Deuteronomy, forbid Israel, the Jews, from breaking the bones of the Passover lamb. Did the soldiers know that? Did they, if they had known that, would they have even given a rip about that? No, they probably would have wanted to break his legs all the more, right? They didn't care. They didn't know, but the Lord did. The Father did. And so even in the details of his death, the Father is guarding Jesus' identity as the Passover lamb a final sacrifice that, that would enable the judgment of God to pass over all who trust in him. And, and so just to make sure he's dead, the soldiers, verse 34, pierced Jesus' side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. That's weird. No, that's a picture of the fullness of our salvation. That, that notice the second scripture John quotes and sees fulfilled when Jesus' side is pierced. Verse 37, comes from Zechariah 12.10. I want you to listen to how the Lord describes this day of salvation that, that he said several hundred years before Jesus died was coming. Listen, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What, what is this spirit of grace and pleas for mercy stuff? Well, it's a heart of repentance. It's, it's a heart attitude God promised to, to work in his people, heart that actually grieves the guilt of our sin. But, but notice how the Lord also promised that their sorrow for sin would have a focal point when they look on who? Me. On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Who, who does the Lord say will be pierced by his rebellious people? It's not a random him, the Lord says, it's me. It's God himself. The, the Lord promises a coming day when his people would recognize the depth of their guilt. A, a guilt that culminated in responsibility for the death of the firstborn son of God. And on that day, God said, when they come to their senses, so to speak, and, and cry out to the Lord for mercy, what will happen? Zechariah 13, 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God promised that. And so the water... And the blood flowing from Jesus' wounded side, they represent something, biblically. A fountain of salvation. That's the image. A fountain that, that washes away the stain of our sin and our uncleanness once and for all. Recall the Lord's promise to the woman of Samaria. At the well in John 4, what did he offer to her? Come to me, I will give you living water. Right? And so when Jesus died, he became for us a fountain of living water. The water of salvation, the, the assurance of eternal life with God. And that water is mixed with blood because it's through his death that we find life. And friend, you need to know that is a fountain of cleansing and salvation that will never, ever run dry. Ever. Not because Jesus remains on the cross. We're still suffering on account of our sins, but because of the infinite worth of his sacrifice. You need to know that you will never discover or commit a sin that's too big to be plunged beneath that cleansing flood. You'll never discover that. You'll never commit that. So don't hold back, sinner. Don't, don't try to clean yourself up or atone for your iniquity. If you know you're a sinner, if you feel the weight of your sin, run to Jesus because he's done all that's necessary for you to be forgiven and restored to God. Such is the fullness of our salvation. So what do we do in view of the weight of his cross, the authority of his reign, the fulfillment of his word, the tenderness of his care, the perfection of his work, the fullness of our salvation, what do we do? We resolve as the people of God to not stop running to Jesus. <laughs> That's what we do, hold, holding fast to him with humble gratitude, sacrificial awe at the God who died that we might live. The point of this whole passage with all that's going on is that the sacrificial death of Jesus is the focal point of true faith in him. Let's pray and ask for his help to trust him.
Jesus, the facets of your glory that we have looked at in this passage are just the outskirts of your ways. But what we see, Father, gives us great reason for joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, especially at Christmas. Thank you, Jesus, that you were born to die, that through your death we might have everlasting life. Lord, we ask this morning that you would increase our faith in your finished work. And as we express our trust and gratitude for you in song and then share the Lord's Supper, would you increase our confidence, Jesus, that you are the perfect Savior we so need. Thank you for being our King. In your name we pray. Amen.